So Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees had, and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, and they observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? And he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honour your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of your father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realise that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him, for it doesn't go into the heart but into the stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. So a couple of months ago, I went to watch Avatar, The Last Airbender. Uh, sorry, The Last Airbender. <laughs> I'm really mixing my uh, genres here, aren't I? Avatar, Way of the Water. Um, although The Last Airbender is great. Sadly, the only session I could get into was the 3D screening. So I had to get a pair of those 3D glasses. Um, great movie. I hate 3D. Of course... I had to see, do you do this, take off the 3D glasses and see what it's like without it. And, of course, it's terrible. Everything's really wonky. Nothing lines up. And so having those glasses really helps us see the picture as it was intended. So we looked at this passage two weeks ago and we saw that the Pharisees challenged Jesus uh, because his disciples weren't ceremonially washing before eating. Of course, it had nothing to do with hygiene. It was about ritual purity according to their tradition. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees uh, because they have twisted God's word to suit their tradition um, and they have given their tradition more authority than the word of God. They'd taken off the glasses of the Word of God and they'd put on the glasses of tradition. Well, today we're going to tackle just the last couple of verses there, that list of sins. 
that Jesus says come uh, from thoughts that come out of the heart and defile us. And friends, this is a challenging topic. uh, And I think one of the reasons we often struggle with this whole issue of sin um, is because we take off our glasses of the word and we need them in order to be able to see clearly. Look, the reality is for most of us, even even me, we spend time in the world uh, and we become adjusted to the values of the world and, and we, we live in that space. And, you know, that's uh, actually good and proper, but we need to practice putting on the glasses of the word of God. And so we're going to do that this morning. Now, this list of sins that Jesus uh, mentions in verses 21 to 22, um, I'm not going to read them again. (laughs) Uh, That that would have resonated with his Jewish audience, particularly because they would have seen these things in their pagan neighbours. But I think the reality is, that all of us are guilty of at least some of these sins. And Jesus says these things, these evil thoughts, as he calls them, arise from the heart. Now, in the ancient world, the heart wasn't just the place where you felt feels. The heart was actually the core of who you are. Say something comes out of the heart, says it comes out of you, your inner person. And so these evil thoughts that he mentions run to the very core of who we are. And to hearken back to the Pharisees, no amount of hand washing can remove the stain of sin. We can't shift the blame for sin. We have to own what we do and what we think because it comes from our hearts. And Jesus names 12 vices that represent these evil thoughts. So evil Thoughts are sort of a heading, and then he moves into a list of evil thoughts. And he's got a couple of catch-alls in there as well, so this isn't a definitive list. Now, it's a little confronting to us in the 21st century that sexual immorality is listed first. And in fact, three of these vices revolve around this. Uh, Sexual immorality is one, adultery. And what the Bible, my Bible, translates as self-indulgent, uh, which includes licentiousness and, and debauchery. Now, I do, as uh, I just start this little section, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of trauma uh, and guilt around this subject. And my goal is not to condemn this morning, but to lead a, to a place where we can find wholeness. Um, but we can't do that without facing squarely the word of God. The cure for sin is in the word of God. But the diagnosis is as well, and we need to uphold both of these if we're to find wholeness in Christ. Now, in our society, sex is seen as something that's only immoral if it's non-consensual. And and in fact, repressing it is seen as unhealthy and and even dangerous, and casual hookups are okay. But Jesus takes a different view. Jesus mentions sexual immoralities and, and uh, as I'll mention in a minute, these first six vices that he mentions are in the plural. So what does he mean? Well, we need to remember that Jesus is speaking into a Jewish context and he is grounded in the Torah, in the, uh, the books of the law. 
And in Matthew, Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the law. And remember, he's just rebuked the Pharisees for perverting the law, for twisting it to suit their own purposes. And so the law is a good place to start. Now, of course, I'll just mention that we have changed our relationship to the law, but Jesus uh, changes the relationship. He doesn't completely do away with it. So Leviticus has a lot to say about this. Leviticus 22, 16 to 17 said that if a man slept with a single woman, he was expected to marry her. Any other activity outside of heterosexual marriage was punishable by death, including adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and certain forms of incest, although all forms of incest were banned. So essentially the biblical view is that sex is reserved for heterosexual monogamous marriage. And this sets off all sorts of alarm bells in our culture and perhaps in your mind as well. But we need to understand that although the world may see this as something we just do for fun, for Christians, it's a sacred gift from God. From Genesis 2.24, the sexual union is something mysterious and profound and beautiful that creates one flesh when a man and a woman come together in marriage. Now, it's hard enough for married Christians in this realm but this creates a real tension for single Christians and, and Christians who are same-sex attracted. The his, and I, I look, I can't deal with this topic this morning. Having mentioned homosexuality is such an issue in our society that we just have to deal with it as a church. My goal this morning is, although I think my views will be pretty clear, not to tell you what to think, but just to give some tools in thinking through it, because I know there's going to be all sorts of different views in this room today. So, of course, the historic Christian view of homosexuality is particularly controversial today, um, even in the church, but let's face it, all Christian sexual ethics is controversial today. So how do we think about it? Well, just to repeat what I just said, the the reality is... uh, The Bible celebrates sex but consistently condemns extramarital sex and it only recognises heterosexual marriage. Now, uh, I have read even Christian theologians who say uh, homosexuality is okay, who say, look, we have to acknowledge this from the start. So we have to uh, deal with the Bible as it is wherever we go from there. Some will argue that since Jesus never discussed homosexuality, the prohibition doesn't apply anymore, but this isn't the only thing Jesus didn't talk about. He didn't discuss incest or other sexual sins explicitly either, so we just have to take that into account. Second, I think it's really important for us as Christians to remember that our culture takes sex as primary. I think it really it has become almost the fundamental right and sexual identity. And sometimes this colours our view as Christians when we're approaching the topic. But we have to remember something very radical and very, very challenging, I think, to just about every single human being on the planet. Jesus affirmed celibacy, and Paul actually says celibacy is superior to marriage. He sort of gives marriage as a concession because of our weakness. 
And so whatever view we arrive at in this place, we have to put our sexuality in its rightful place. It is not primary. It's important. It's valuable. It's not primary. Third, we need to remember that in every struggle against sin, and not just in the sexuality, but every sin, and we'll look at some more in a moment, the gospel has power. And we can't look at the topic of sin without remembering the gospel. We have overcoming, resurrection, Holy Spirit power available to us. And we mustn't start, when we look at the topic of sin, we mustn't start from the assumption of we are weak, we are weak, and we are defeated, but we start from the assumption of victory in Jesus. I'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. Fourth, temptation is not a sin. Jesus was tempted. I don't believe someone being same-sex attracted or gay or whatever you want to use to describe that is um, a sin, just as being opposite sex attracted is not a sin. Being same-sex attracted doesn't disqualify someone from full participation in Christ or his church. Finally, Despite the gospel realities, despite the realities I've just looked at of what the Bible says, sexuality is a powerful source, uh, a force in our world and in our lives, and sexual purity and faithfulness is a difficult path, whether you're single or married or whatever your situation. And in fact, I would wager that we are all broken in some way in this area. And all of us need copious amounts of grace. You know, it's notable that for all the New Testament's teaching in this area on holiness and purity, we only read that I can think of one case in the New Testament where someone is expelled from the church because of this. And that was for a particularly egregious act. Paul is far more condemnatory of false teaching. And matters like that. So we mustn't excuse sin and we mustn't excuse this sin, but we can understand it and we need to keep it in its context. And above all, we need to put on love, compassion and understanding, especially to those who struggle in this area. And I just want to say, if you do struggle with your sexual identity or sexual sin, please know that we love you. We feel your struggle. You don't have to be ashamed in this church. And more importantly, God loves and accepts you. Okay, that's a lot of time just on on those three little areas. So let's move on. Because obviously sexual immorality is not the only sin Jesus mentions here. And in fact, I think some of the other ones he mentions can be far more um, harmful. They're certainly far more insidious and perhaps in some of them are more obvious because of that. It's interesting that uh, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, which is avarice, that uh, greed for things, evil actions, which is a, a catch-all for whatever else fits under the heading sin, all of these are in the plural. There's more than one way to commit these sins. And that prompts us to think about the different ways we might do that, we might commit them. Uh, beyond the obvious ones, theft, well, obviously, shoplifting's wrong, but what else? So, for example, 
another aspect of our culture is it's very consumerist. We love to acquire things. And uh, our culture might, you know, look down a little bit on, on, you know, the acquisition of things we don't really need. Might vaguely frown upon that, but who doesn't like a bit of retail therapy, if you can afford it? And when an Amazon, you ever get an Amazon parcel land on your doorstep? My kids seem to get them pretty regularly. Oh, it's such a good feeling. (laughs) But when does our casual consumerism become greed? And what of the sweatshop worker who made those pair of shoes? What's being stolen from them? And are we complicit in that question? It's really hard. Then Jesus mentions deceit, self-indulgence, uh, which includes debauchery or licentiousness, envy, uh, which is desiring what other people have, slander, pride, which is sort of arrogance, hubris, foolishness, which is really at the foundation of all other sin. The, the Old Testament talks a lot about foolishness um, being a rejection of, of God and his moral foundation. And I'm sure... Um, you know, when we look inwards, we realise that even the things we might be innocent of on the outside, I haven't murdered anyone, you'll be happy to know. They don't look so good on the inside, do they? They diminish us, they destroy relationships, and sometimes they destroy lives. And so when we consider these sins, if we are honest with ourselves, we realise that none of us is untouched by sin. So what are we to do with it? Well, there are a number of ways we can respond. One is simply to diminish the seriousness of sin. But I think we mustn't do that. Um, Sin kills. It kills relationally, spiritually, psychologically, environmentally, and sometimes physically. It's a big deal, and I don't think we should diminish it. Well, the opposite approach is to judge sinners and cancel those who we deem guilty, as the Pharisees of Jesus' day did, and as seems to happen quite commonly in our own culture. But all that serves to do is to make us hypocrites, just as Jesus accused the Pharisees of being. Or we change the rules, also as the Pharisees did. The Bible is seen as out of date, and and there's immense pressure to conform to the world's values. We invent something like the prosperity doctrine. And rather than promoting a life of simplicity, we say, God wants you to have lots of stuff. God wants you to have that expensive car or that big house or whatever it is. We redefine marriage. But friends, for those of us who are Christians, what does God say? What does the God who says, be holy because I am holy, say? The God whose word stands forever. What does love demand? The love that 1 Corinthians 13 says is kind and patient, but also says it finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. What would Jesus do? The Jesus who was full of compassion, but also came, to fulfil the law. Well, of course, I think you know where I'm going to go. The gospel. 
Now, the gospel uncompromisingly confronts sin and says we need to turn from it. Remember Jesus, if you've been tracking with this right from the start, Jesus' message at the start of Mark, which sort of is a frame for this whole gospel, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is near. But Jesus also knows we are helpless in the face of sin. And so he reaches down and he rescues us. And we see him delivering people from demons. We see him healing people from their diseases. We see him forgiving sins scandalously. And ultimately, as we will see in the next couple of weeks, he goes to the cross so he can be the atoning sacrifice for our sins and reconcile us to God. And more than that, he gives us power to live a new life in the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So Jesus said that sin comes out of the heart and defiles us, but he changes our heart and cleanses us and renews us. God forgives us and enables us to overcome sin. Now, it's messy, it's painful, there are tensions. We take two steps forward and one step back. We stumble and fall. But he's with us in the messiness, holding us our hand, helping us get back up. And here's the thing, although you don't see it always, if you belong to God, he is creating you into the image of God. Of his son. When I took off those glasses in the cinema the other month, I noticed that the picture is a mess. It was comprised of a number of layers in in, uh, different colors and depth, and they just didn't align. But it was when I put the glasses on that the layers resolved into a beautiful and coherent image, and some of it was really stunning. That's how it can feel when we look at human weakness and sin and the gospel and God's call to us. But God is the master filmmaker creating a masterpiece of grace. And the word of God is like those glasses which we uh, put on that bring seemingly disparate images together. And this, friends, this is the genius of Christianity. It's why we can own our sin like other people can't, because we have grace, because we all know we're in the same boat, because we know that God accepts us anyway. And he brings those disparate images together into a coherent picture, the gospel. So may God grant us to see sin and grace and to see ourselves through that gospel, that gospel of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Some of what I've talked about will be particularly confronting for some today. And Father, I just pray. Uh, Father, as we work through these issues, and I'm sure some of us will arrive in different places, but Lord, I pray that we will view the issue through the lenses of the gospel of your word, And, Father, that we will receive your grace. 
as we seek to be conformed to the image of your Son, as his disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.